BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Chapter 7, 1845 to 1846, at the age of 27 to 29, Part 1, of the Journal of Henry David Thoreau, Volume 1, 1837-1846. to This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7, Part 1 July 5th, Saturday Walden Yesterday I came here to live. My house makes me think of some mountain houses I have seen, which seem to have a fresher auroral atmosphere about them, as I fancy of the halls of Olympus. I lodged at the house of a sawmiller last summer on the Catskill Mountains, high up as pine orchard in the blueberry and raspberry region, where the quiet and the cleanliness and coolness seemed to be all one, which had their ambrosial character. He was the miller of the Catterskill Falls. They were a clean and wholesome family, inside and out like their house. The latter was not plastered, only lathed, and the inner doors were not hung. The house seemed high-placed, airy, and perfumed, fit to entertain a traveling god. It was so high indeed that all the music, the broken strains, the waifs and accompaniments of tunes that swept over the ridge of the Catskills passed through its aisles. Could not man be man in such an abode? And would he ever find out this groveling life? It was the very light and atmosphere in which the works of Grecian art were composed and in which they rest. They have appropriated to themselves a loftier hall than mortals ever occupy, at least on a level with the mountain brows of the world. There was wanting a little of the glare of the lower vales, and in its place a pure twilight as became the precincts of heaven. Yet so equable and calm was the season there that you could not tell whether it was morning or noon or evening. Always there was the sound of the morning cricket. July 6th. I wished to meet the facts of life, 
the vital facts which are the phenomena or actuality the gods meant to show us face to face and so i came down here life who knows what it is what it does if i am not quite right here i am less wrong than before and now let us see what they will have the preacher instead of vexing the ears of drowsy farmers on their day of rest at the end of the week for sunday always seemed to me like a fit conclusion of an ill-spent week and not the fresh and brave beginning of a new one with this one other draggle-tale and postponed affair of a sermon from thirdly to fifteenthly should teach them with a thundering voice pause and simplicity stop avast why so fast in all studies we go not forward but rather backward with redoubled pauses we always study antiques with silence and reflection even time has a depth and below its surface the waves do not lapse and roar i wonder men can be so frivolous almost as to attend to the gross form of negro slavery there are so many keen and subtle masters who subject us both self-emancipation in the west indies of a man's thinking and imagining provinces which should be more than his island territory one emancipated heart and intellect it would knock off the fetters from a million slaves july seventh i am glad to remember to-night as i sit by my door that i too am at least a remote descendant of that heroic race of men of whom there is tradition i too sit here on the shore of my ithaca a fellow wanderer and survivor of ulysses how symbolical significant of i know not what the pitch-pine stands here before my door unlike any glyph i have seen sculptured or painted yet one of nature's later designs yet perfect as her grecian art there it is a dun tree who can mend it and now where is the generation of heroes whose lives are to pass amid these our northern pines whose exploits shall appear to posterity pictured amid these strong and shaggy forms shall there be only arrows and bows to go with these pines on some pipe-stone quarry at length there is something more respectable than railroads in these simple relics of the indian race what hieroglyphs shall we add to the pipe-stone quarry if we can forget we have done somewhat if we can remember we have done somewhat let us remember this the great spirit makes indifferent all times and places the place where he is seen is always the same and indescribably pleasant to all our senses 
we had allowed only neighboring and transient circumstances to make our occasions. They were, in fact, the causes of our distractions. But nearest to all things is that power which fashions their being. Next to us the grandest laws are being enacted and administered. Next to us is not the workman whom we have hired, but ever the workman whose work we are. He is at work, not in my backyard, but inconceivably nearer than that. We are the subjects of an experiment how singular. Can we not dispense with the society of our gossips a little while under these circumstances? My auxiliaries are the dews and rains to water this dry soil, and genial fatness in the soil itself, which for the most part is lean and effete. My enemies are worms, cool days, and most of all woodchucks. They have nibbled for me an eighth of an acre clean. I plant in faith, and they reap. This is the tax I pay for ousting John's wart and the rest. But soon the surviving beans will be too tough for woodchucks, and then they will go forward to meet new foes. July 14th. What sweet and tender, the most innocent and divinely encouraging society there is in every natural object, and so in universal nature, even for the poor misanthrope and most melancholy man. There can be no really black melancholy to him who lives in the midst of nature and still has his senses. There never was yet such a storm, but it was Eolan music to the innocent ear. Nothing can compel to a vulgar sadness a simple and brave man. While I enjoy the sweet friendship of the seasons, I trust that nothing can make life a burden to me. This rain, which is now watering my beans and keeping me in the house, waters me too. I needed it as much. And what if most are not hoed? Those who send the rain, whom I chiefly respect, will pardon me. Sometimes, when I compare myself with other men, Methinks I am favored by the gods. They seem to whisper joy to me beyond my deserts, and that I do have a solid warrant and surety at their hands, which my fellows do not. I do not flatter myself, but if it were possible, they flatter me. I am especially guided and guarded." What was seen true once, and sanctioned by the flash of Jove, will always be true, and nothing can hinder it. I have the warrant that no fair dream I have had need fail of its fulfillment. Here I know I am in good company. Here is the world, its center and metropolis, 
and all the palms of Asia and the laurels of Greece and the firs of the Arctic zone incline thither. Here I can read Homer, if I would have books, as well as in Ionia, and not wish myself in Boston or New York or London or Rome or Greece. In such place as this he wrote or sang. Who should come to my lodge just now but a true Homeric boar, one of those Paphlagonian men? Alex Therian, he called himself, a Canadian now, a woodchopper, a postmaker. Makes fifty posts, holes them, i.e. in a day, and who made his last supper on a woodchuck which his dog caught. And he too has heard of Homer, and if it were not for books, would not know what to do rainy days. Some priest once, who could read glibly from the Greek itself, taught him reading in a measure, his verse at least in his turn, away by the Trois Rivieres at Nicolette. And now I must read to him, while he holds the book, Achilles' reproof of Patroclus on his sad countenance. Quote, Why are you in tears, Patroclus, like a young child, girl? Etc., etc. Or have you only heard some news from Thya? They say that Minoitius lives yet, son of Actor, and Peleus lives, son of Aeacus, among the Myrmidons, both of whom, having died, we should greatly grieve. He has a neat bundle of white oak bark under his arm for a sick man, gathered this Sunday morning. I suppose there's no harm in going after such a thing today. The simple man. May the gods send him many woodchucks. And earlier today came five lestragons, railroad men who take care of the road, some of them at least. They still represent the bodies of men, transmitting arms and legs and bowels downward from these remote days to more remote. They have some got a rude wisdom withal, thanks to their dear experience. And one with them, a handsome younger man, a sailor-like, Greek-like man, says, Sir, I like your notions. I think I shall live so myself. Only I should like a wilder country, where there is more game. I have been among the Indians near Apolochicola. I have lived with them. I like your kind of life. Good day. I wish you success and happiness. Therian said this morning, July 16th, Wednesday, If those beans were mine, I shouldn't like to hoe them till the dew was off. He was going to his wood chopping. Ah, said I, that is one of the notions the farmers have got, but I don't believe it. How thick the pigeons are, said he, 
If working every day were not my trade, I could get all the meat I should want by hunting, pigeons, woodchucks, rabbits, partridges. By George, I could get all I should want for a week in one day. I imagine it to be some advantage to live a primitive and frontier life, though in the midst of an outward civilization. Of course, all the improvements of the ages do not carry a man backward nor forward in relation to the great facts of his existence. Our furniture should be as simple as the Arabs or the Indians. At first the thoughtful, wondering man plucked in haste the fruits which the boughs extended to him, and found in the sticks and stones around him his implements ready to crack the nut, to wound the beast, and build his house with. And he still remembered that he was a sojourner in nature. When he was refreshed with food and sleep, he contemplated his journey again. He dwelt in a tent in this world. He was either threading the valleys, or crossing the plains, or climbing the mountain tops. Now the best works of art serve comparatively but to dissipate the mind, for they themselves represent transitionary and paroxysmal, not free and absolute, thoughts. Men have become the tools of their tools. The man who independently plucked the fruits when he was hungry is become a farmer. There are scores of pitch pines in my field, from one to three inches in diameter, girdled by the mice last winter. A Norwegian winter it was for them, for the snow lay long and deep, and they had to mix much pine meal with their usual diet. Yet these trees have not many of them died, even in midsummer and laid bare for a foot, but have grown a foot. They seem to do all their gnawing beneath the snow. There is not much danger of the mouse tribe becoming extinct in hard winters, for their granary is a cheap and extensive one. Here is one has had her nest under my house, and came when I took my luncheon to pick the crumbs at my feet. It had never seen the race of man before, and so the sooner became familiar. It ran over my shoes and up my pantaloons inside, clinging to my flesh with its sharp claws. It would run up the side of the room by short impulses like a squirrel, which it resembles, coming between the house mouse and the former. Its belly is a little reddish, and its ears a little longer. At length, as I leaned my elbow on the bench, it ran over my arm and round the paper which contained my dinner. And when I held it a piece of cheese, it came and nibbled between my fingers, and then cleaned its face and paws like a fly. There is a memorable interval 
between the written and the spoken language, the language read and the language heard. The one is transient, a sound, a tongue, a dialect, and all men learn it of their mothers. It is loquacious, fragmentary, raw material. The other is a reserved, select, matured expression, a deliberate word addressed to the ear of nations and generations. The one is natural and convenient, the other divine and instructive. The clouds flit here below, genial, refreshing with their showers and gratifying with their tints, alternate sun and shade, a grosser heaven adapted to our trivial wants. But above them repose the blue firmament and the stars. The stars are written words and stereotyped on the blue parchment of the skies. The fickle clouds that hide them from our view, which we on this side need, though heaven does not, these are our daily colloquies, our vaporous, garrulous breath. Books must be read as deliberately and reservedly as they were written. The herd of men, the generations who speak the Greek and Latin, are not entitled by the accident of birth to read the works of genius, whose mother tongue speaks everywhere and is learned by every child who hears. The army of the Greeks and Latins are not co-eternary, though contemporary, with Homer and Plato, Virgil and Cicero. In the transition ages, nations who loudest spoke the Greek and Latin tongues, whose mother's milk they were, learned not their nobler dialects, but a base and vulgar speech. The men of the Middle Ages who spoke so glibly the language of the Roman and, in the Eastern Empire, of the Athenian mob, prized only a cheap contemporary learning. The classics of both languages were virtually lost and forgotten. When, after the several nations of Europe had acquired in some degree rude and original languages of their own, sufficient for the arts of life and conversation, then the few scholars beheld with advantage from this more distant standpoint the treasures of antiquity, and a new Latin age commenced, the era of reading. Those works of genius were then first classical. All those millions who had spoken Latin and Greek had not read Latin and Greek. The time had at length arrived for the written word, the scripture, to be heard. What the multitude could not hear, after the lapse of centuries, a few scholars read. This is the matured thought which was not spoken in the marketplace, unless it be in a marketplace where the free genius of mankind resorts today. There is something very choice and select in a written word. 
no wonder alexander carried his homer in a precious casket on his expeditions a word which may be translated into every dialect and suggests a truth to every mind is the most perfect work of human art and as it may be breathed and taken on our lips and as it were become the product of our physical organs as its sense is of our intellectual it is the nearest to life itself it is the simplest and purest channel by which a revelation may be transmitted from age to age how it subsists itself whole and undiminished till the intelligent reader is born to decipher it there are the tracks of zoroaster of confucius and moses indelible in the sands of the remotest times there are no monuments of antiquity comparable to the classics for interest and importance it does not need that the scholar should be an antiquarian for these works of art have such an immortality as the works of nature and are modern at the same time that they are ancient like the sun and stars and occupy by right no small share of the present this palpable beauty is the treasured wealth of the world and the proper inheritance of each generation books the oldest and the best stand rightfully on the shelves of every cottage they have not to plead their cause but they enlighten their readers and it is gained when the illiterate and scornful rustic earns his imagined leisure and wealth he turns inevitably at last he or his children to these still higher and yet inaccessible circles and even when his descendant has attained to move in the highest rank of the wise men of his own age and country he will still be sensible only of the imperfection of his culture and the vanity and inefficiency of his intellectual wealth if his genius will not permit him to listen with somewhat of the equanimity of an equal to the fames of godlike men which yet as it were form an invisible upper class in every society i have carried an apple in my pocket to-night a sopsivine they call it till now that i take my handkerchief out it has got so fine a fragrance that it really seems like a friendly trick of some pleasant demon to entertain me with it is redolent of sweet-scented orchards of innocent teeming harvests i realize the existence of a goddess pomona and that the gods have really intended that men should feed divinely like themselves on their own nectar and ambrosia they have so painted this fruit and freighted it with such a fragrance that it satisfies much more than an animal appetite grapes peaches berries nuts etc 
are likewise provided for those who will sit at their sideboard. I have felt, when partaking of this inspiring diet, that my appetite was an indifferent consideration, that eating became a sacrament, a method of communion, an ecstatic exercise, a mingling of bloods, and a sitting at the communion table of the world, and so have not only quenched my thirst at the spring, but the health of the universe. The indecent haste and grossness with which our food is swallowed have cast a disgrace on the very act of eating itself. But I do believe that, if this process were rightly conducted, its aspect and effects would be wholly changed, and we should receive our daily life and health, Antaeus-like, with an ecstatic delight, and with upright front and innocent and graceful behavior, take our strength from day to day. This fragrance of the apple in my pocket has, I confess, deterred me from eating of it. I am more effectually fed by it another way. It is, indeed, the common notion that this fragrance is the only food of the gods, and inasmuch as we are partially divine, we are compelled to respect it. Tell me, ye wise ones, if ye can, whither and whence the race of man, for I have seen his slender clan, clinging to hoar hills with their feet, threading the forest for their meat, moss and lichens, bark and grain, they rake together with might and main, and they digest them with anxiety and pain. I meet them in their rags and unwashed hair, instructed to eke out their scanty fare, brave race with a yet humbler prayer. Beggars they are, I on the largest scale, they beg their daily bread at heaven's door. And if their this year's crop alone should fail, they neither bread nor begging would know more. They are the titmen of their race, and hug the vales with mincing pace, like troglodytes, and fight with cranes. We walk mid great relations' feet, what they let fall alone we eat. We are only able to catch the fragments from their table. These elder brothers of our race, by us unseen with larger pace, walk o'er our heads and live our lives, embody our desires and dreams, anticipate our hoped-for gleams. We grub the earth for our food. We know not what is good. Where does the fragrance of our orchards go, our vineyards while we toil below? A finer race and finer fed, 
feast and revel above our head the tints and fragrance of the flowers and fruits are but the crumbs from off their table while we consume the pulp and roots sometimes we do assert our kin and stand a moment where once they have been we hear their sounds and see their sights and we experience their delights but for the moment that we stand astonished on the olympian land we do discern no traveller's face no elder brother of our race to lead us to the monarch's court and represent our case but straightway we must journey back retracing slow the arduous track without the privilege to tell even the sight we know so well in my father's house are many mansions who ever explored the mansions of the air who knows who his neighbors are we seem to lead our human lives amid a concentric system of worlds of realm on realm close bordering on each other where dwell the unknown and the imagined races as various in degree as our own thoughts are a system of invisible partitions more infinite in number and more inconceivable in intricacy than the starry one which science has penetrated when i play my flute to-night earnest as if to leap the bounds of the narrow fold where human life is penned and range the surrounding plain i hear echo from a neighboring wood a stolen pleasure occasionally not rightfully heard much more for other ears than ours for tis the reverse of sound it is not our own melody that comes back to us but an amended strain and i would only hear myself as i would hear my echo corrected and repronounced for me it is as when my friend reads my verse the borders of our plot are set with flowers whose seeds were blown from more elysian fields adjacent they are the pot herbs of the gods which our laborious feet have never reached and fairer fruits and unaccustomed fragrance betray another realm's vicinity there too is echo found with which we play at evening there is the abutment of the rainbow's arch end of chapter seven part one chapter seven eighteen forty five to eighteen forty six at the age of twenty seven to twenty nine part two of the journal of henry david thoreau volume one eighteen thirty seven to eighteen forty six this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter seven part two august sixth walden i have just been reading a book 
called the Crescent and the Cross. Till now I am somewhat ashamed of myself. Am I sick or idle that I can sacrifice my energy, America, and today to this man's ill-remembered and indolent story? Karnak and Luxar are but names, and still more desert sand, and at length a wave of the great ocean itself are needed to wash away the filth that attaches to their grandeur. Karnak, Karnak, this is Karnak for me, and I behold the columns of a larger and a purer temple. May our childish and fickle aspirations be divine while we descend to this mean intercourse. Our reading should be heroic in an unknown tongue, a dialect always but imperfectly learned, through which we stammer line by line, catching but a glimmering of the sense, and still afterward admiring its unexhausted hieroglyphics, its untranslated columns. Here grow around me nameless trees and shrubs, each morning freshly sculptured, rising new stories day by day, instead of hideous ruins their myriad-handed worker, uncompelled as uncompelling. This is my Karnak, that its unmeasured dome. The measuring art man has invented flourishes and dies upon this temple's floor, nor ever dreams to reach that ceiling's height. Karnak and Luxor crumble underneath, their shadowy roofs let in the light once more reflected from the ceiling of the sky. Behold these flowers. Let us be up with time, not dreaming of three thousand years ago. Erect ourselves and let those columns lie, not stoop to raise a foil against the sky. Where is the spirit of that time but in this present day, this present line? Three thousand years ago are not agone. They are still lingering here this summer morn. And Memnon's mother sprightly greets us now, wears still her youthful blushes on her brow. And Karnak's columns, why stand they on the plain? To enjoy our opportunities, they would fain remain. This is my Karnak, whose unmeasured dome shelters the measuring art and measurer's home, whose propelium is the system high and sculptured facade the visible sky. Where there is memory which compelleth time, the muses' mother and the muses' nine, there are all ages, past and future time. Unwearied memory that does not forget the actions of the past, that does not forego to stamp them freshly, that old mortality, industrious to retouch the monuments of time and the world's cemetery throughout every clime. 
the student may read homer or aeschylus in the original greek for to do so implies to emulate their heroes the consecration of morning hours to their pages the heroic books though printed in the character of our mother tongue are always written in a foreign language dead to idle and degenerate times and we must laboriously seek the meaning of each word and line conjecturing a larger sense than the text renders us at last out of our own valor and generosity a man must find his own occasion in himself the natural day is very calm and will hardly reprove our indolence if there is no elevation in our spirits the pond will not seem elevated like a mountain tarn but a low pool a silent muddy water a place for fishermen i sit here at my window like a priest of isis and observe the phenomena of three thousand years ago yet unimpaired the tantivy of wild pigeons an ancient race of birds gives a voice to the air flying by twos and threes athwart my view or perching restless on the white pine boughs occasionally a fish-hawk dimples the glassy surface of the pond and brings up a fish and for the last half-hour i have heard the rattle of railroad cars conveying travellers from boston to the country after the evening train has gone by and left the world to silence and to me the whippoorwill chants her vespers for half an hour and when all is still at night the owls take up the strain like mourning women their ancient ululu their most dismal scream is truly ben johnsonian wise midnight hags it is no honest and blunt to wit to who of the poets but without jesting a most solemn graveyard ditty but the mutual consolations of suicide lovers remembering the pangs and the delights of supernal love in the infernal groves and yet i love to hear their wailing their doleful responses trilled along the woodside reminding me sometimes of music and singing birds as if it were the dark and tearful side of music the regrets and sighs that would fain be sung the spirits the low spirits and melancholy forebodings of fallen spirits who once in human shape night walked the earth and did the deeds of darkness now expiating with their wailing hymns thronodii their sins and the very scenery of their transgressions they give me a new sense of the vastness and mystery of that nature which is the common dwelling of us both oh that i never had been borororororn sighs one on this side of the pond and circles in the restlessness of despair to some new perch in the grey oaks then 
that I have never been borororororn echoes one on the further side with a tremulous sincerity and borororororn comes faintly from far in the Lincoln woods. And then the frogs, bullfrogs, they are the more sturdy spirits of ancient wine-bibbers and wassailers, still unrepentant, trying to sing a catch in their Stygian lakes. They would fain keep up the hilarious good fellowship and all the rules of their old round tables, but they have waxed hoarse and solemnly grave and serious their voices, mocking at mirth, and their wine has lost its flavor and is only liquor to distend their paunches, and never comes sweet intoxication to drown the memory of the past, but mere saturation and water-logged dullness and distension. Still the most aldermanic, with his chin upon a pad, which answers for a napkin to his drooling chaps, under the eastern shore quaffs a deep draught of the once-scorned water, and passes round the cup with the ejaculation trunk, 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 and straightway comes over the water from some distant cove the self-same password, where the next in seniority and girth has gulped down to his mark and when the strain has made the circuit of the shores, then ejaculates the master of ceremonies with satisfaction trunk, and each in turn repeats the sound down to the least distended, leakiest, flabbiest paunched, that there be no mistake, and the bowl goes round again until the sun dispels the morning mist, and only the patriarch is not under the pond, but vainly bellowing trunk from time to time, pausing for a reply. All nature is classic and akin to art. The sumac and pine and hickory which surround my house remind me of the most graceful sculpture. Sometimes their tops, or a single limb or leaf, seems to have grown to a distinct expression as if it were a symbol for me to interpret poetry painting and sculpture claim at once and associate with themselves those perfect specimens of the art of nature leaves vines acorns pine cones etc the critic must at last stand as mute, though contented, before a true poem as before an acorn or a vine leaf. The perfect work of art is received again into the bosom of nature whence its material proceeded, and that criticism which can only detect its unnaturalness has no longer any office to fulfill. The choicest maxims that have come down to us are more beautiful or integrally wise than they are wise to our understandings. This wisdom which we are inclined to pluck from their stalk is the point only of a single association. 
every natural form, palm leaves and acorns, oak leaves and sumac and dodder, are untranslatable aphorisms. Twenty-three years since, when I was five years old, I was brought from Boston to this pond, away in the country, which was then but another name for the extended world for me, one of the most ancient scenes stamped on the tablets of my memory, the oriental Asiatic valley of my world, whence so many races and inventions have gone forth in recent times. That woodland vision for a long time made the drapery of my dreams. That sweet solitude my spirit seemed so early to require that I might have room to entertain my thronging guests, and that speaking silence that my ears might distinguish the significant sounds. Somehow or other, it at once gave the preference to this recess among the pines, where almost sunshine and shadow were the only inhabitants that varied the scene, over that tumultuous and varied city, as if it had found its proper nursery. Well, now to-night my flute awakes the echoes over this very water, but one generation of pines has fallen, and with their stumps I have cooked my supper, and a lusty growth of oaks and pines is rising all around its brim, and preparing its wilder aspect for new infant eyes. Almost the same Johnswort springs from the same perennial root in this pasture, even I have at length helped to clothe that fabulous landscape of my imagination, and one result of my presence and influence is seen in these bean-leaves and corn-blades and potato-vines. As difficult to preserve is the tenderness of your nature as the bloom upon a peach. Most men are so taken up with the cares and rude practice of life that its finer fruits cannot be plucked by them. Literally, the laboring man has not leisure for a strict and lofty integrity day by day. He cannot afford to sustain the fairest and noblest relations. His labor will depreciate in the market." How can he remember well his ignorance, who has so often to use his knowledge? August 15th. The sounds heard at this hour, 8.30, are the distant rumbling of wagons over bridges, a sound farthest heard of any human at night, the baying of dogs, the lowing of cattle in distant yards. What if we were to obey these fine dictates, these divine suggestions, which are addressed to the mind and not to the body, which are certainly true, not to eat meat, not to buy or sell or barter, etc., etc., etc.? I will not plant beans another summer, but sincerity, truth, simplicity, faith, trust, 
innocence, and see if they will not grow in this soil with such manure as I have and sustain me. When a man meets a man, it should not be some uncertain appearance and falsehood, but the personification of great qualities. Here comes truth, perchance, personified along the road. Let me see how truth behaves. I have not seen enough of her. He shall utter no foreign word, no doubtful sentence, and I shall not make haste to part with him. I would not forget that I deal with infinite and divine qualities in my fellow. All men, indeed, are divine in their core of light, but that is indistinct and distant to me, like the stars of the least magnitude or the galaxy itself. But my kindred planets show their round disks and even their attendant moons to my eye. Even the tired laborers I meet on the road, I really meet as traveling gods, but it is as yet, and must be for a long season without speech. August 23rd, Saturday. I set out this afternoon to go a fishing for pickerel to eke out my scanty fare of vegetables. From Walden I went through the woods to Fairhaven, but by the way the rain came on again, and my fates compelled me to stand a half-hour under a pine, piling boughs over my head, and wearing my pocket-handkerchief for an umbrella. And when at length I had made one cast over the pickerel-weed, the thunder gan rumbling in the heaven with that grisly Stephen that Chaucer tells of. The gods must be proud, with such forked flashes and such artillery to rout a poor unarmed fisherman. I made haste to the nearest hut for a shelter. This stood a half a mile off the road, and so much the nearer to the pond. There dwelt a shiftless Irishman, John Field, and his wife, and many children, from the broad-faced boy that ran by his father's side to escape the rain, to the wrinkled and sibyl-like, crone-like infant, not knowing whether to take the part of age or infancy, that sat upon its father's knee as in the palaces of nobles, and looked out from its home in the midst of wet and hunger inquisitively upon the stranger, with the privilege of infancy. The young creature, not knowing but it might be the last of a line of kings instead of John Field's poor starveling brat, or, I should rather say, still knowing that it was the last of a noble line and the hope and sinecure of the world. An honest, hard-working, but shiftless man plainly was John Field. And his wife, she too was brave to cook so many succeeding dinners in the recesses of that lofty stove, with round, greasy face and bare breast, still thinking to improve her condition one day, with the never-absent mop in hand, and yet no effects of it visible anywhere. 
the chickens like members of the family stalked about the room too much humanized to roast well they stood and looked in my eye or pecked at my shoe he told me his story how hard he worked bogging for a neighbor at ten dollars an acre and the use of the land with manure for one year and the little broad-faced son worked cheerfully at his father's side the while not knowing alas how poor a bargain he had made living john field alas without arithmetic failing to live do you ever fish said i oh yes i catch a mess when i am lying by good perch i catch what's your bait i catch shiners with fishworms and bait the perch with them you'd better go now john said his wife with glistening hopeful face but poor John Field disturbed but a couple of fins while I was catching a fair string, and he said it was his luck, and when he changed seats, luck changed seats too. Thinking to live by some derivative old country mode in this primitive new country, e.g. to catch perch with shiners. I find an instinct in me conducting to a mystic spiritual life, and also another to a primitive savage life. Toward evening, as the world waxes darker, I am permitted to see the woodchuck stealing across my path, and tempted to seize and devour it. The wildest, most desolate scenes are strangely familiar to me, why not live a hard and emphatic life, not to be avoided, full of adventures and work, learn much in it, travel much, though it be only in these woods? I sometimes walk across a field with unexpected expansion and long missed content, as if there were a field worthy of me. The usual daily boundaries of life are dispersed, and I see in what field I stand. When on my way this afternoon, shall I go down this long hill in the rain to fish in the pond? I ask myself, and I say to myself, yes, roam far, grasp life and conquer it, learn much and live. Your fetters are knocked off, you are really free. Stay till late in the night, be unwise and daring. See many men far and near in their fields and cottages before the sun sets, though as if many more were to be seen. And yet each rencontre shall be so satisfactory and simple that no other shall seem possible. Do not repose every night as villagers do. The noble life is continuous and unintermitting. At least live with a longer radius. Men come home at night only from the next field or street, where their household echoes haunt, and their life pines and is sickly because it breathes its own breath. Their shadows, morning and evening, reach farther than their daily steps. 
but come home from far from ventures and perils from enterprise and discovery and crusading with faith and experience and character do not rest much dismiss prudence fear conformity remember only what is promised make the day light you and the night hold a candle though you be falling from heaven to earth from morn to dewy eve a summer's day for vulcan's fall occupied a day but our highest aspirations and performances fill but the interstices of time are we not reminded in our better moments that we have been needlessly husbanding somewhat perchance our little god-derived capital or title to capital guarding it by methods we know but the most diffuse prodigality a better wisdom teaches that we hold nothing we are not what we were by usurer's craft by jewish methods we strive to retain and increase the divinity in us when infinitely the greater part of divinity is out of us most men have forgotten that it was ever morning but a few serene memories healthy and wakeful natures there are who assure us that the sun rose clear heralded by the singing of birds this very day's sun which rose before memnon was ready to greet it in all the dissertations on language men forget the language that is that is really universal the inexpressible meaning that is in all things and everywhere with which the morning and evening teem as if language were especially of the tongue of course with a more copious learning or understanding of what is published the present languages and all that they express will be forgotten the rays which streamed through the crevices will be no more remembered when the shadow is wholly removed left house on account of plastering wednesday november twelfth at night returned saturday december sixth though the race is not so degenerated but a man might possibly live in a cave to-day and keep himself warm by furs yet as caves and wild beasts are not plenty enough to accommodate all at the present day it were certainly better to accept the advantages which the invention and industry of mankind offer in thickly settled civilized communities boards and shingles lime and brick are cheaper and more easily come by than suitable caves or the whole logs or bark in sufficient quantity or even well-tempered clay or flat stones a tolerable house for a rude and hardy race that lived much out of doors was once made here without any of these last materials according to the testimony of the first settlers of boston an indian wigwam was as comfortable in winter as an english house with all its wainscoting 
and they had advanced so far as to regulate the effect of the wind by a mat suspended over the hole in the roof which was moved by a string such a lodge was in the first instance constructed in a day or two and taken down and put up again in a few hours and every family had one thus to try our civilization by a fair test in the ruder states of society every family owns a shelter as good as the best and sufficient for its ruder and simpler wants but in modern civilized society though the birds of the air have their nests and woodchucks and foxes their holes though each one is commonly the owner of his coat and hat though never so poor yet not more than one man in a thousand owns a shelter but the nine hundred and ninety-nine pay an annual tax for this outside garment of all indispensable summer and winter which would buy a village of indian wigwams and contributes to keep them poor as long as they live but answers one by simply paying this annual tax the poorest man secures an abode which is a palace compared to the indians an annual rent of from twenty to sixty or seventy dollars entitles him to the benefit of all the improvements of centuries rumford fireplace back plastering venetian blinds copper pump spring lock etc etc but while civilization has been improving our houses she has not equally improved the men who should occupy them she has created palaces but it was not so easy to create noblemen and kings the mason who finishes the cornice of the palace returns at night perchance to a hut no better than a wigwam if she claims to have made a real advance in the welfare of man she must show how she has produced better dwellings without making them more costly and the cost of a thing it will be remembered is the amount of life it requires to be exchanged for it immediately or in the long run an average house costs perhaps from one thousand to fifteen hundred dollars and to earn this sum will require from fifteen to twenty years of the day laborer's life even if he is not encumbered with a family so that he must spend more than half his life before a wigwam can be earned and if we suppose he pays a rent instead this is but a doubtful choice of evils would the savage have been wise to exchange his wigwam for a palace on these terms when i consider my neighbors the farmers of concord for instance who are at least as well off as the other classes what are they about for the most part i find that they have been toiling ten twenty or thirty years to pay for their farms and we may set down one half of that toil to the cost of their houses and commonly they have not yet paid for them 
this is the reason they are poor and for similar reasons we are all poor in respect to a thousand savage comforts though surrounded by luxuries End of chapter 7, part 2 Chapter 7, 1845-1846, at the age of 27-29, to 29, part 3 of the Journal of Henry David Thoreau, volume 1, 1837-1846. to 1846. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7, Part 3 But most men do not know what a house is, and the mass are actually poor all their days because they think they must have such an one as their neighbors. As if one were to wear any sort of coat the tailor might cut out for him, or gradually leaving off palm-leaf hat and cap of woodchuck skin, should complain of hard times because he could not buy him a crown. It reflects no little dignity on nature, the fact that the Romans once inhabited her, that from this same unaltered hill, forsooth, the Roman once looked out upon the sea as from a signal station. The vestiges of military roads, of houses and tessellated courts and baths, nature need not be ashamed of these relics of her children. The hero's cairn, one doubts at length whether his relations or nature herself raised the hill. The whole earth is but a hero's cairn. How often are the Romans flattered by the historian and antiquary? Their vessels penetrated into this frith and up that river of some remote isle. Their military monuments still remain on the hills and under the sod of the valleys. The oft-repeated Roman story is written in still legible characters in every quarter of the old world, and but today a new coin is dug up whose inscription repeats and confirms their fame. Some Judea capta with a woman mourning under a palm tree, with silent argument and demonstration, puts at rest whole pages of history. The earth, which seems so barren, once gave birth to heroes who o'erran her plains, who ploughed her seas and reaped her grains. Some make the mythology of the Greeks to have been borrowed from that of the Hebrews, which, however, is not to be proved by analogies. The story of Jupiter dethroning his father Saturn, for instance, from the conduct of Cham towards his father Noah, and the division of the world among the three brothers. But the Hebrew fable will not bear to be compared with the Grecian. The latter is infinitely more sublime and divine. The one is a history of mortals, the other a history of gods and heroes, therefore not so ancient. 
the one god of the hebrews is not so much of a gentleman not so gracious and divine not so flexible and catholic does not exert so intimate an influence on nature as many a one of the greeks he is not less human though more absolute and unapproachable the grecian were youthful and living gods but still of godlike or divine race and had the virtues of gods the hebrew had not all of the divinity that is in man no real love for man but an inflexible justice the attribute of the one god has been infinite power not grace not humanity nor love even wholly masculine with no sister juno no apollo no venus in him i might say that the one god was not yet apotheosized not yet become the current material of poetry the wisdom of some of those greek fables is remarkable the god apollo wisdom wit poetry condemned to serve keep the sheep of king admetus so is poetry allied to the state to Iacus, minos radamanthus judges in hell only naked men came to be judged as alexander ross comments quote, in this world we must not look for justice when we are stripped of all then shall we have it for here something will be found about us that shall corrupt the judge End quote. when the island of aegina was depopulated by sickness at the instance of aeacus jupiter turned the ants into men i e made men of the inhabitants who lived meanly like ants the hidden significance of these fables which has been detected the ethics running parallel to the poetry and history is not so remarkable as the readiness with which they may be made to express any truth they are the skeletons of still older and more universal truths than any whose flesh and blood they are for the time made to wear it is like striving to make the sun and the wind and the sea signify what signifies it piety that carries its father on its shoulders music was of three kinds mournful martial and effeminate lydian doric and phrygian its inventors amphion thamyris and marcius amphion was bred by shepherds he caused the stones to follow him and build the walls of thebes by his music all orderly and harmonious or beautiful structures may be said to be raised to a slow music harmony was begotten of mars and venus antaeus was the son of neptune and the earth all physical bulk and strength is of the earth and mortal 
when it loses this pont d'appui it is weakness it cannot soar and so vice versa you can interpret this fable to the credit of the earth they all provoked or challenged the gods amphion apollo and diana and was killed by them the Miris, the muses who conquered him in music took away his eyesight and melodious voice and broke his lyre marcius took up the flute which minerva threw away challenged apollo was flayed alive by him and his death mourned by fauns satyrs and dryads whose tears produced the river which bears his name the fable which is truly and naturally composed so as to please the imagination of a child harmonious though strange like a wild flower is to the wise man an apothem and admits his wisest interpretation when we read that bacchus made the tyrian mariners mad so that they leaped into the sea mistaking it for a meadow full of flowers and so became dolphins we are not concerned about the historical truth of this but rather a higher poetical truth we seem to hear the music of a thought and care not if our intellect be not gratified the mythologies whose vestiges of ancient poems the world's inheritance still reflecting some of their original hues like the fragments of clouds tinted by the departed sun the wreck of poems a retrospect as of the loftiest fames what survives of oldest fame some fragrant will still float into the latest summer day and ally this hour to the morning of creation these are the materials and hints for a history of the rise and progress of the race how from the condition of ants it arrived at the condition of men how arts were invented gradually let a thousand surmises shed some light on this story we will not be confined by historical even geological periods which would allow us to doubt of a progress in human events if we rise above this wisdom for the day we shall expect that this morning of the race in which they have been supplied with the simplest necessaries with corn and wine and honey and oil and fire and articulate speech and agriculture and other arts reared up by degrees from the condition of ants to men will be succeeded by a day of equally progressive splendor that in the lapse of the divine periods other divine agents and godlike men will assist to elevate the race as much above its present condition aristeus found out honey and oil he obtained of jupiter and neptune that the pestilential heat of the dog days wherein was great mortality should be mitigated with wind december twelfth 
Friday. The pond skimmed over on the night of this day, excepting a strip from the bar to the northwest shore. Flint's pond has been frozen for some time. December 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th. Pond quite free from ice, not yet having been frozen quite over. December 23rd, Tuesday. The pond froze over last night entirely for the first time, yet so as not to be safe to walk upon. I wish to say something tonight, not of and concerning the Chinese and Sandwich Islanders, but to and concerning you who hear me, who are said to live in New England. Something about your condition, especially your outward condition or circumstances in this world, in this town, what it is, whether it is necessarily as bad as it is, whether it can't be improved as well as not. It is generally admitted that some of you are poor, find it hard to get a living, haven't always something in your pockets, haven't paid for all the dinners you've actually eaten, or all your coats and shoes, some of which are already worn out. All this is very well known to all by hearsay and by experience. It is very evident what a mean and sneaking life you live, always in the hampers, always on the limits, trying to get into business and trying to get out of debt, a very ancient slew, called by the Latins ius alienum, another's brass some of their coins being made of brass and still so many living and dying and buried to-day by another's brass always promising to pay promising to pay with interest to-morrow perhaps and die to-day insolvent seeking to curry favor to get custom lying flattering voting contracting yourself into a nutshell of civility, or dilating into a world of thin and vaporous generosity, that you may persuade your neighbor to let you make his shoes, or his hat, or his coat, or his carriage, etc. There is a civilization going on among brutes as well as men. Foxes are forest dogs. I hear one barking raggedly, wildly, demoniacally in the darkness to-night, seeking expression, laboring with some anxiety, striving to be a dog outright, that he may carelessly run in the street, struggling for light. He is but a faint man before pygmies, an imperfect burrowing man. He has come up near to my window, attracted by the light, and barked a vulpine curse at me, then retreated. Reading suggested by Hallam's History of Literature 1. Abelard and Heloise 2. Look at Luigi Pulci, his Morgante Maggiore, published in 1481, 
was to the poetical romances of chivalry what Don Quixote was to their brethren in prose. 3. Leonardo da Vinci the most remarkable of his writings still in manuscript for his universality of genius the first name of the fifteenth century four read boiardo's orlando inamorato published between fourteen ninety one and fifteen hundred for its influence on ariosto and its intrinsic merits its sounding names repeated by Milton in Paradise Regained. Landor's works are a small volume of poems, 1793, out of print, poems of Jeber, Chrysor, the Phocians, etc., the Jeber eulogized by Southey and Coleridge, wrote verses in Italian and Latin. The dramas Andrea of Hungary, Giovanni of Naples, and Fra Rupert, Pericles and Aspasia, poems from the Arabic and Persian, 1800, pretending to be translations, a satire upon satirists and admonition to detractors, printed 1836, not published letters called high and low life in italy imaginary conversations pentapmeron and pentalogia examinations of william shakespeare before sir thomas lucy knight touching deer stealing V-Day, again, Richard's Sale, in Richard I and the Abbot. Phocian's Remarks, in conclusion of Eskines and Phocian. Demosthenes and Eubelides. In Milton and Marvel, speaking of the Greek poets, he says, There is a sort of refreshing odor flying off it perpetually not enough to oppress or to satiate nothing is beaten or bruised nothing smells of the stalk the flower itself is half concealed by the genius of it hovering round pericles and sophocles marcus tullius cicero and his brother quintus in this a sentence on sleep and death Johnson and Took for a criticism on words. It is worth the while to have lived a primitive wilderness life at some time, to know what are, after all, the necessaries of life and what methods society has taken to supply them. I have looked over the old day-books of the merchants with the same view, to see what it was shopmen bought, they are the grossest groceries salt is perhaps the most important article in such a list and most commonly bought at the stores of articles commonly thought to be necessaries salt sugar molasses cloth etc by the farmer 
you will see why stores or shops exist, not to furnish tea and coffee, but salt, etc. Here's the rub, then. I see how I could supply myself with every other article which I need, without using the shops, and to obtain this might be the fit occasion for a visit to the seashore. Yet even salt cannot, strictly speaking, be called a necessary of human life, since many tribes do not use it. "'Have you seen my hound, sir? I want to know.' "'What? A lawyer's office? Law books? "'If you've seen anything of a hound about here, why, what do you do here?' "'I live here. No, I haven't. "'Haven't you heard one in the woods anywhere?' "'Oh, yes, I heard one this evening.' "'What do you do here?' but he was some way off. Which side did he seem to be? Well, I should think he was on the other side of the pond. This large dog makes a large track. He's been out hunting from Lexington for a week. How long have you lived here? Oh, about a year. Somebody said there was a man up here, had a camp in the woods somewhere, and he'd got him. Well, I don't know of anybody. There's Britain's camp over on the other road. It may be there. Isn't there anybody in these woods? Yes, they are chopping right up here behind me. How far is it? Only a few steps. Hark a moment. There, don't you hear the sound of their axes? Therian, the woodchopper, was here yesterday, and while I was cutting wood, some chickadees hopped near pecking the bark and chips and the potato skins I had thrown out. "'What do you call them?' he asked. I told him. "'What do you call them?' asked I. "'Mezzazensi, I think he said. "'When I eat my dinner in the woods,' said he, sitting very still, having kindled a fire to warm my coffee, they come and light on my arm and peck at the potato in my fingers. I like to have the little fellers about me. Just then one flew up from the snow and perched on the wood I was holding in my arms and pecked it, then looked me familiarly in the face. Chick-a-dee-dee-dee-dee while others were whistling Phoebe, Phoebe, in the woods behind the house. March 26, 1846 The change from foul weather to fair, from dark sluggish hours to serene elastic ones, is a memorable crisis which all things proclaim. The change from foulness to serenity is instantaneous. Suddenly an influx of light, though it was late, filled my room. I looked out and saw that the pond was already calm and full of hope as on a summer evening, though the ice was dissolved but yesterday. 
there seemed to be some intelligence in the pond which responded to the unseen serenity in a distant horizon i heard a robin in the distance the first i had heard this spring repeating the assurance the green pitch pine suddenly looked brighter and more erect as if now entirely washed and cleansed by the rain i knew it would not rain any more a serene summer evening sky seemed darkly reflected in the pond though the clear sky was nowhere visible overhead it was no longer the end of a season but the beginning the pines and shrub oaks which had before drooped and cowered the winter through with myself now recovered their several characters and in the landscape revived the expression of an immortal beauty trees seemed all at once to be fitly grouped to sustain new relations to men and to one another there was somewhat cosmical in the arrangement of nature oh the evening robin at the close of a new england day if i could ever find the twig he sits upon where does the minstrel really roost we perceive it is not the bird of the ornithologist that is heard the turdus migratorius the signs of fair weather are seen in the bosom of ponds before they are recognized in the heavens it is easy to tell by looking at any twig of the forest whether its winter is past or not we forget how the sun looks on our fields as on the forests and the prairies as they reflect or absorb his rays that matters not whether we stand in italy or on the prairies of the west in the eye of the sun the earth is all equally cultivated like a garden and yields to the wave of an irresistible civilization this broad field which i have looked on so long looks not to me as the farmer looks away from me to the sun and attends to the harmony of nature these beans have results which are not harvested in the autumn of the year they do not mind if i harvest them who waters and makes them grow our grain fields make part of a beautiful picture which the sun beholds in his daily course and it matters little comparatively whether they fill the barns of the husbandmen the true husbandmen will cease from anxiety and labor with every day and relinquish all claim to the produce of his fields the avaricious man would fain plant by himself a flock of geese has just got in late now in the dark flying low over the pond they came on indulging at last like weary travellers in complaint and consolation or like some creaking evening mail late lumbering in with regular and serene clangour i stood at my door and could hear their wings when they suddenly spied my light 
and ceasing their noise, wheeled to the east and apparently settled in the pond. March 27th. This morning I saw the geese from the door through the mist sailing about in the middle of the pond, but when I went to the shore they rose and circled round like ducks over my head, so that I counted them. Twenty-nine. I after saw thirteen ducks. End of chapter 7「Chapter eight, eighteen forty five to eighteen forty seven, at the age of twenty seven to thirty, part one of the Journal of Henry David Thoreau, volume one, eighteen thirty seven to eighteen forty six. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter eight, part one. The small and much mutilated journal which begins here appears to belong to the Walden period, 1845 to 47, but the entries are undated. The Hero What doth he ask? Some worthy task? Never to run till that be done, that never done under the sun here to begin all things to win by his endeavor for ever and ever happy and well on this ground to dwell this soil subdue plant and renew by might and main health and strength gain so to give nerve to his slenderness yet some mighty pain he would sustain, so to preserve his tenderness. Not be deceived of suffering bereaved, not lose his life by living too well, nor escape strife in his lonely cell, and so find out heaven by not knowing hell. Strength like the rock to withstand any shock, yet some errand's rod, some smiting by God, occasion to gain, to shed human tears, and to entertain still demonic fears. Not once for all, forever blessed, still to be cheered out of the West, not from his heart to banish all sighs, still be encouraged by the sunrise forever to love and to love and to love within him around him beneath him above to love is to know is to feel is to be at once tis his birth and his destiny having sold all something would get furnish his stall with better yet, for earthly pleasures, celestial pains, heavenly losses for earthly gains. Still to begin, unheard of sin, a fallen angel, a risen man, never returns to where he began. Some childlike labor here to perform, 
some baby house to keep out the storm, and make the sun laugh while he doth warm, and the moon cry to think of her youth, the months gone by, and wintering truth. How long to morning? Can any tell? How long since the warning on our ears fell? The bridegroom cometh, know we not well? Are we not ready, our packet made, our hearts steady, last words said? Must we still eat the bread we have spurned? Must we rekindle the faggots we've burned? Must we go out by the poor man's gate, die by degrees, not by new fate? Is there no road this way, my friend? Is there no road without any end? Have you not seen in ancient times pilgrims go by here toward other climes with shining faces youthful and strong? mounting this hill with speech and with song oh my good sir i know not the ways little my knowledge though many my days when i have slumbered i have heard sounds as travellers passing over my grounds twas a sweet music wafted them by I could not tell if far off or nigh. Unless I dreamed it, this was of yore, but I never told it to mortal before, never remembered but in my dreams what to me waking a miracle seems. If you will give of your pulse or your grain, we will rekindle those flames again. Here will we tarry still without doubt, till a miracle putteth that fire out. At midnight's hour I raised my head. The owls were seeking for their bread. The foxes barked impatient still. At their wan fate they bear so ill. I thought me of eternities delayed and of commands but half obeyed. The night wind rustled through the glade, as if a force of men there stayed. The word was whispered through the ranks, and every hero seized his lance. The word was whispered through the ranks. Advance. To live to a good old age, such as the ancients reached, serene and contented, dignifying the life of man, leading a simple epic country life in these days of confusion and turmoil, that is what Wordsworth has done, retaining the tastes and the innocence of his youth. There is more wonderful talent but nothing so cheering and world-famous as this. The life of man would seem to be going all to rack and pieces, and no instance of permanence and the ancient natural health, notwithstanding 
burns and coleridge and carlyle it will not do for men to die young the greatest genius does not die young whom the gods love most do indeed die young but not till their life is matured and their years are like those of the oak for they are the products half of nature and half of god what should nature do without old men not children but men the life of men not to become a mockery and a jest should last a respectable term of years we cannot spare the age of those old greek philosophers they live long who do not live for a near end who still forever look to the immeasurable future for their manhood all dramas have but one scene there is but one stage for the peasant and for the actor and both on the farm and in the theatre the curtain rises to reveal the same majestic scenery the globe of earth is poised in space for his stage under the foundations of the theatre and the cope of heaven out of reach of the scene shifter overarches it it is always to be remembered by the critic that all actions are to be regarded at last as performed from a distance upon some rood of earth and amid the operations of nature rabelais too inhabited the soil of france in sunshine and shade in those years and his life was no farce after all i seek the present time no other clime life in to-day not to sail another way to paris or to rome or farther still from home that man whoe'er he is lives but a moral death whose life is not coeval with his breath my feet forever stand on concord fields and i must live the life which their soil yields what are deeds done away from home what the best essay on the ruins of rome the love of the new the unfathomed blue the wind in the wood all future good the sunlit tree the small chickadee the dusty highways what scripture says this pleasant weather and all else together the rivers meander all things in short forbid me to wander in deed or in thought in cold or in drought not seek the sunny south but make my whole tour in the sunny present hour for here if thou fail where canst thou prevail if you love not your own land most you'll find nothing lovely on a distant coast if you love not the latest sunset what is there in pictures or old gems set if no man should travel till he had the means there'd be little travelling for kings 
or for queens. The means, what are they? They are the wherewithal. Great expenses to pay, life got, and some to spare. Great works on hand, and freedom from care. Plenty of time well spent to use, clothes paid for, and no rent in your shoes. Something to eat, and something to burn, and above all no need to return. Then they who come back say, have they not failed, wherever they've ridden, or steamed it, or sailed? All your grass hayed, all your debts paid, all your wills made, then you might as well have stayed. For are you not dead, only not buried? The way unto today, the railroad to here, they never'll grade that way, nor shorten it, I fear. There are plenty of depots all the world o'er, but not a single station at a man's door. If he would get near to the secret of things, he'll not have to hear when the engine bell rings. Exaggeration was ever any virtue attributed to a man without exaggeration? Was ever any vice without infinite exaggeration? Do we not exaggerate ourselves to ourselves, or do we often recognize ourselves for the actual men we are? The lightning is an exaggeration of light. We live by exaggeration. Exaggerated history is poetry, and is truth referred to a new standard. To a small man, every greater one is an exaggeration. No truth was ever expressed but with this sort of emphasis, so that for the time there was no other truth. The value of what is really valuable can never be exaggerated. You must speak loud to those who are hard of hearing, so you acquire a habit of speaking loud to those who are not. In order to appreciate any, even the humblest man, you must not only understand, but you must first love him. And there never was such an exaggerator as love. Who are we? Are we not all of us great men? And yet, what are we actually? Nothing certainly to speak of. By an immense exaggeration, we appreciate our Greek poetry and philosophy, Egyptian ruins, our Shakespeare's and Milton's, our liberty and Christianity. We give importance to this hour over all other hours. We do not live by justice, but by grace. Love never perjures itself, nor is it mistaken. He is not the great writer who is afraid to let the world know that he ever committed an impropriety. Does it not know that all men are mortal? Carlyle told R. W. E. 
that he first discovered that he was not a jackass on reading Tristram Shandy and Rousseau's Confessions, especially the last. His first essay is an article in Fraser's magazine on two boys quarreling. Youth wants something to look up to, to look forward to, as the little boy who inquired of me the other day, how long do those old agers live? And expressed the intention of compassing two hundred summers at least. The old man who cobbles shoes without glasses at a hundred and cuts a handsome swath at a hundred and five is indispensable to give dignity and respectability to our life. From all points of the compass, from the earth beneath and the heavens above, have come these inspirations and been entered duly in the order of their arrival in the journal. Thereafter, when the time arrived, they were winnowed into lectures and again in due time from lectures into essays. And at last they stand, like the cubes of Pythagoras, firmly on either basis, like statues on their pedestals, but the statues rarely take hold of hands. There is only such connection and series as is attainable in the galleries, and this affects their immediate practical and popular influence. Carlyle, we should say, more conspicuously than any other, though with little enough expressed or even conscious sympathy, represents the reformer class. In him the universal plaint is most settled and serious. Until the thousand named and nameless grievances are righted, there will be no repose for him in the lap of nature or the seclusion of science and literature and all the more for not being the visible acknowledged leader of any class. All places, all positions, all things in short, are a medium happy or unhappy. Every realm has its center, and the nearer to that the better while you are in it. Even health is only the happiest of all mediums. There may be excess or there may be deficiency. In either case, there is disease. A man must only be virtuous enough. End of chapter 8, part 1《Chapter 8, 1845-1847, at the age of 27 to 30, part 2, of the Journal of Henry David Thoreau, volume 1, 1837-1846. Chapter 8, part 2. I had one neighbor within half a mile for a short time when I first went to the woods, Hugh Coyle, an Irishman who had been a soldier at Waterloo, Colonel Coyle, as he was called. I believe that he had killed a colonel and ridden off his horse, 
who lived from hand sometimes to mouth though it was commonly a glass of rum that the hand carried he and his wife awaited their fate together in an old ruin in walden woods what life he got or what means of death he got by ditching i never was much acquainted with hugh coyle though sometimes i met him in the path and now do believe that a solid shank-bone and skull which no longer aches lies somewhere and can still be produced which once with garment of flesh and broadcloth were called and hired to do work as hugh coyle he was a man of manners and gentlemanlike as one who had seen the world and was capable of more civil speech than you could well attend to at a distance he had seemingly a ruddy face as of biting january but nearer at hand it was bright carmine it would have burnt your finger to touch his cheek he wore a straight-bodied snuff-colored coat which had long been familiar with him and carried a turf-knife in his hand instead of a sword he had fought on the english side before but he fought on the napoleon side now napoleon went to st helena hugh coyle came to walden pond i heard that he used to tell travellers who inquired about myself that and thoreau owned the farm together but thoreau lived on the place and carried it on he was thirstier than i and drank more probably but not out of the pond that was never the lower for him perhaps i ate more than he the last time i met him the only time i spoke with him was at the foot of the hill on the highway as i was crossing to the spring one summer afternoon the pond water being too warm for me i was crossing the road with a pail in my hand when coyle came down the hill wearing his snuff-colored coat as if it were winter and shaking with delirium tremens i hailed him and told him that my errand was to get water at the spring close by only at the foot of the hill over the fence he answered with stuttering and parched lips bloodshot eye and staggering gesture he'd like to see it follow me there then but i had got my pail full and back before he scaled the fence and he drawing his coat about him to warm him or to cool him answered in delirium tremens hydrophobia dialect which is not easy to be written here he'd heard of it but had never seen it and so shivered his way along to town to liquor and to oblivion on sundays brother irishmen and others who had gone far astray from steady habits and the village crossed my bean-field with empty jugs towards coils but what for did they sell rum there i asked respectable people they know no harm of them 
never heard that they drank too much, was the answer of all wayfarers. They went by sober, stealthy, silent, skulking, no harm to get elm-bark Sundays, returned loquacious, sociable, having long intended to call on you. At length one afternoon, Hugh Coyle, feeling better perchance, with snuff-colored coat as usual, paced solitary and soldier-like, thinking of Waterloo, along the woodland road to the foot of the hill by the spring, and there the fates met him, and threw him down in his snuff-colored coat on the gravel, and got ready to cut his thread. But not till travelers passed, who would raise him up, get him perpendicular, then settle, settle quick. But legs, what are they? Lay me down, says Hugh hoarsely. House locked up, key in pocket, wife in town. And the fates cut, and there he lay by the wayside, five feet ten, and looking taller than in life. He has gone away, his house here all tore to pieces. What kind of fighting or ditching work he finds to do now, how it fares with him, whether his thirst is quenched, whether there is still some semblance of that carmine cheek, struggles still with some liquid demon, perchance on more equal terms, till he swallow him completely, I cannot by any means learn. What his salutation is now, what his January morning face, what he thinks of Waterloo, what start he has gained or lost, what work still for the ditcher and forester and soldier now, there is no evidence. He was here, the likes of him, for a season, standing light in his shoes like a faded gentleman, with gesture almost learned in drawing-rooms, wore clothes, hat, shoes, cut ditches, felled wood, did farm work for various people, kindled fires, worked enough, ate enough, drank too much. He was one of those unnamed countless sects of philosophers who founded no school. Now that he was gone, and his wife was gone too, for she could not support the solitude, before it was too late and the house was torn down, I went over to make a call. Now that Irishman with jugs avoided the old house, I visited it. An unlucky castle now, said they. There lay his old clothes curled up by habit, as if it were himself upon his raised plank bed. His pipe lay broken on the hearth, and scattered about were soiled cards, king of diamonds, hearts, spades, on the floor. One black chicken, which they could not catch, still went to roost in the next apartment, stepping silent over the floor, frightened by the sound of its own wings, black as night and as silent, too, not even croaking. 
awaiting Reynard, its god actually dead. There was the dim outline of a garden which had been planted, but had never received its first hoeing, now overrun with weeds, with burrs and cockles, which stick to your clothes, as if in the spring he had contemplated a harvest of corn and beans before that strange trembling of the limbs overtook him. Skin of woodchuck fresh stretched, never to be cured, met once in Beanfield by the Waterloo man with uplifted hoe. No cap, no mittens wanted. Pipe on hearth, no more to be lighted, best buried with him. No thirst for glory, only for strong drink. Only the convalescent are conscious of the health of nature. In case of an embargo, there will be found to be old clothes enough in everybody's garret to last till the millennium. We are fond of news, novelties, new things. The bank bill that is torn in two will pass if you save the pieces, if you have only got the essential piece with the signatures. Lowell and Manchester and Fall River think you will let go their broadcloth currency when it is torn. But hold on, have an eye to the signature about the back of it, and endorse the man's name from whom you received it, and they will be the first to fail and find nothing at all in their garrets. Every day our garments become more assimilated to the man that wears them, more near and dear to us, and not finally to be laid aside, but with such delay and medical appliance and solemnity as our other mortal coil. We know, after all, but few men, a great many coats and breeches, Dress a scarecrow with your last shift, you standing shiftless by, who would not soonest address the scarecrow and salute it. King James loved his old shoes best. Who does not? Indeed, these new clothes are often won and worn only after a most painful birth. At first, movable prisons oyster-shells which the tide only raises, opens and shuts, washing in what scanty nutriment may be afloat. How many men walk over the limits, carrying their limits with them? In the stocks they stand, not without gaze of multitudes, only without rotten eggs, in torturing boots, the last wedge but one driven. Why should we be startled at death? Life is constant putting off of the mortal coil, coat, cuticle, flesh and bones, all old clothes. Not till the prisoner has got some rents in his prison walls, possibility of egress without lock and key some day, result of steel watch-spring rubbing on iron grate, or whatever friction and wear and tear will he rest contented in his prison. Clothes brought in sewing, a kind of work 
you may call endless. A man who has at length found out something important to do will not have to get a new suit to do it in. For him the old will do, lying dusty in the garret for an indefinite period. Old shoes will serve a hero longer than they have served his valet. Bare feet are the oldest of shoes, and he can make them do. Only they who go to legislature and soirees, they must have new coats, coats to turn as often as the man turns in them. Whoever saw his old shoes, his old coat, actually worn out, returned to their original elements, so that it was not a deed of charity to bestow them on some poorer boy, and by him to be bestowed on some poorer still, or shall we say on some richer who can do with less. Over eastward of my bean-field lived Cato Ingraham, slave, born slave perhaps, of Duncan Ingraham, Esquire, gentleman, of Concord Village, who built him a house and gave him permission to live in Walden Woods, for which, no doubt, he was thanked. And then, on the northeast corner, Zilpha, colored woman of fame, and down the road on the right hand, Brister, colored man, on Brister's Hill where grow still those little wild apples he tended, now large trees, but still wild and ciderish to my taste. And farther still you will come to Breed's location, and again on the left, by well and roadside, Nutting lived. Farther up the road at the pond's end, Wyman the potter, who furnished his townsmen with earthenware, the squatter. Now only a dent in the earth marks the site of most of these human dwellings. Sometimes the well-dent where a spring oozed, now dry and tearless grass, or covered deep, not to be discovered till late days by accident, with a flat stone under the sod. These dents, like deserted foxboroughs, old holes where once was the stir and bustle of human life overhead, and man's destiny, fate, free will, foreknowledge absolute, were all by turns discussed. Still grows the vivacious lilac for a generation after the last vestige else is gone, unfolding still its early sweet-scented blossoms in the spring to be plucked only by the musing traveller planted tended weeded watered by children's hands in front-yard plot now by wall-side in retired pasture or giving place to a new rising forest the last of that stirp sole survivor of that family. Little did the dark children think that that weak slip with its two eyes which they watered would root itself so, and outlive them, and house in the rear that shaded it, 
and grown man's garden and field and tell their story to the retired wanderer a half-century after they were no more blossoming as fair smelling as sweet as in that first spring its still cheerful tender civil lilac colors the woodland road though once more dark and shut in by the forest resounded with the laugh and gossip of inhabitants and was notched and dotted here and there with their little dwellings though now but a humble rapid passage to neighboring villages or for the woodsman team it once delayed the traveller longer and was a lesser village in itself you still hear from time to time the winnering of the raccoon still living as of old in hollow trees washing its food before it eats it the red fox barks at night the loon comes in the fall to sail and bathe in the pond making the woods ring with its wild laughter in the early morning at rumor of whose arrival all concord sportsmen are on the alert in gigs on foot two by two three by three with patent rifles patches conical balls spy-glass or open hole over the barrel they seem already to hear the loon laugh come rustling through the woods like october leaves these on this side those on that for the poor loon cannot be omnipresent if he dive here must come up somewhere the october wind rises rustling the leaves ruffling the pond water so that no loon can be seen rippling the surface our sportsmen scour sweep the pond with spy-glass in vain making the woods ring with rude charges of powder for the loon went off in that morning rain with one loud long hearty laugh and our sportsmen must beat a retreat to town and stable and daily routine shop work unfinished jobs again or in the gray dawn the sleeper hears the long ducking gun explode over toward goose pond and hastening to the door sees the remnant of a flock black duck or teal go whistling by with outstretched neck with broken ranks but in ranger order and the silent hunter emerges into the carriage road with ruffled feathers at his belt from the dark pond side where he has lain in his bower since the stars went out and for a week you hear the circling clamor clangor of some solitary goose through the fog seeking its mate peopling the woods with a larger life than they can hold for hours and fall days you shall watch the ducks cunningly tack and veer and hold the middle of the pond far from the sportsmen on the shore tricks they have learned and practiced in far canada lakes or in louisiana bayous the waves rise and dash taking sides with all waterfowl then in dark winter mornings 
in short winter afternoons the pack of hounds threading all woods with hounding cry and yelp unable to resist the instinct of the chase and note of hunting horn at intervals showing that man too is in the rear and the woods ring again and yet no fox bursts forth on to the open level of the pond and no following pack after their acting but this small village germ of something more why did it fail while concord grows apace no natural advantages no water privilege only the deep walden pond and cool brister's spring privileges to drink long healthy pure draughts alas all unimproved by those men but to dilute their glass might not the basket-making stable-broom mat-making corn parching potter's business have thrived here making the wilderness to blossom as the rose now all too late for commerce this waste depopulated district has its railroad too and transmitted the names of unborn bristers catos hildas zilfas to a remote and grateful posterity again nature will try with me for a first settler and my house raised last spring to be the oldest in the settlement the sterile soil would have been proof against any lowland degeneracy farmers far and near call it the paradise of beans and here too on winter days while yet is cold january and snow and ice lie thick comes the prudent foreseeing landlord or housekeeper anticipating thirst from the village to get ice to cool his summer drink a grateful beverage if he should live if time should endure so long how few so wise so industrious to lay up treasures which neither rust nor melt to cool their summer drink one day and cut off the solid pond the element and air of fishes held fast with chain and stake like corded wood all through favoring willing kind permitting winter air to wintry cellar to underlie the summer there and cut and saw the cream of the pond unroof the house of fishes and in early mornings come men with fishing reels and slender lunch men of real faith and let down their fine lines and live minnows through the snowy field to hook the pickerel and perch with buried well-stones and strawberries raspberries thimbleberries growing on the sunny sward there some pitchy pine or gnarled oak in the chimney-nook or the sweet-scented black birch where the doorstone was breeds history must not yet tell the tragedies enacted there let time intervene to assuage and lend an azure atmospheric tint to them there is something pathetic 
in the sedentary life of men who have traveled. They must naturally die when they leave the road. What seems so fair and poetic in antiquity, almost fabulous, is realized, too, in Concord life. As poets and historians brought their work to the Grecian games, and genius wrestled there as well as strength of body, so have we seen works of kindred genius read at our Concord games by their author in their own Concord amphitheatre. It is virtually repeated by all ages and nations. Moles nesting in your cellar and nibbling every third potato. A whole rabbit warren only separated from you by the flooring. To be saluted when you stir in the dawn by the hasty departure of Monsieur, thump, 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 striking his head against the floor timbers. Squirrels and field mice that hold to a community of property in your stock of chestnuts. The blue jays suffered few chestnuts to reach the ground, resorting to your single tree in flocks in the early morning and picking them out of the burrs at a great advantage. The crop of blackberries small, berries not yet grown, ground nuts not dug. One wonders how so much, after all, was expressed in the old way. So much here depends upon the emphasis, tone, pronunciation, style, and spirit of the reading. No writer uses so profusely all the aids to intelligibility which the printer's art affords. You wonder how others had contrived to write so many pages without emphatic italicized words. They are so expressive, so natural and indispensable here. As if none had ever used the demonstrative pronoun demonstratively. In others' sentences, the thought, though immortal, is, as it were, embalmed and does not strike you, but here it is so freshly living, not purified by the ordeal of death, that it stirs in the very extremities, the smallest particles and pronouns are all alive with it. You must not say it, but it. It is not simple it, your it or mine, but it. His books are solid, workmanlike, like all that England does. They tell of endless labor done, well done, and all the rubbish swept away, like this bright cutlery which glitters in the windows, while the coke and ashes, turnings, filings, borings, dust, lie far away at Birmingham, unheard of. The words did not come at the command of grammar, but of a tyrannous, inexorable meaning, not like the standing soldiers by vote of Parliament, but any able-bodied countryman pressed into the service. It is no China war, but a revolution. 
this style is worth attending to as one of the most important features of the man that we at this distance know. End of chapter 8, part 2、BetMGM、has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1 800Gambler in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at hero.co.